Hi, welcome to the analysis.news podcast. I'm Paul Jay. And remember, if you can click the donate button, if you haven't already, uh, viewers, keep this project sustainable. In the coming months, I plan to talk to activists and journalists out in the field, organizing and reporting in the working class in different parts of North America. That means Canada, the U.S., and Mexico, and from time to time globally. The subject will be how the building of a people's movement is going, what are the main challenges, and how to develop a broad front politics. Today, I'm joined by Eric Blanc. He was a national surrogate for the Bernie Sanders campaign and the author of Red State Revolt, The Teacher Strike Wave and Working Class Politics. And he reports for Jacobin Magazine. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So, first of all, if, if Trump actually is well enough to go out and campaign and assuming this bravado uh, is more than just bravado and he actually is able to keep in, in the campaign, um, then the scenario seems to be, many people are predicting, and Steve Bannon, who's probably still in, in Trump's ear, is actually calling for, is a kind of war to begin on November the 3rd, meaning that Trump hopes, thinks uh, that he's going to be at least near or even ahead in the Electoral College at the end of the night on November 3rd, and he's going to refuse to recognize mail-in ballots that come in later. Certainly, he's strongly hinted at that. Bannon and some others have outright called for that. Bannon said the war will begin November 3rd. Um, If that is the scenario, uh, the, the Democrats will fight it in court. Uh, the Supreme Court may uh, decide uh, in Trump's favor. Maybe not, but likely will if they actually get this new nomination through, uh, which is a question mark now because everybody's dropping with COVID in terms of the White House and senators and such. But anyway, one way or the other, and even if Biden has an outright victory, there needs to be a really strong, broad popular people's movement if one trumps to be blocked from a kind of coup and or two the biden administration settles into the old obama biden ways and creates the conditions for another type of trump in 2024 so one way or the other there needs to be a broad movement and and you've been calling for getting organized for such now uh, and you've been out in the field covering teachers in states that normally go uh, in Trump's favor. So what what have you learned and what are people doing to get organized? I think the urgency of the moment should be underscored to begin with. The, the scenario layout is, is right. The first thing that needs to be said is that the stakes of November 3rd and November 4th are extremely high. The question of defending basic democratic rights and institutions in this country is, is at stake. And if there's you know, any lesson to be learned from the last 40 plus years of corporate Democrats, it's that they're not going to put up a fight in any real significant way against the right. You know, I'm really worried about the um, possible reproduction of a Florida 2000 scenario in which basically uh, Republican PAC courts give the presidency to the Republicans and the Democratic Party puts up uh, a meager at best fight. So yeah, the question is how do we get organized uh, as working class people, as the left, to be able to 
not only defeat Trump, but to win our political agenda. Because no matter who's in power, the reality is that whether it's Biden or Trump, the only force that's going to actually be able to push forward something resembling uh, a progressive policy that will actually improve things and, and not just at best keep a really unequal status quo, which is what a Biden presidency would do. The only force that can do that is really the organized working class and social movements. So I think the prospects of that are pretty high, especially if we can defeat Trump, which I'm relatively optimistic we can, um, because just the level of the crisis has really reached such a <laughs> disproportionate um, impact that I don't think that, for instance, a Biden presidency would get the honeymoon period that you know was given to the Obama. People uh, really are fed up. It's not just COVID. This is it's healthcare, systematic racism, all these issues, climate change, all these things are really bubbling up. And the task then is how you channel that very widespread and I would argue majoritarian sentiment into an organized movement. And we have seen that the teacher strike since 2018 show that it's not just like a blue state thing that you actually have working class people in every state of this country who are willing to fight back when a political alternative is presented. The difficulty is that political alternative uh, is rarely presented. You know, the Democrats don't really inspire much confidence. The unions oftentimes aren't really fighting. So in the absence of like a viable alternative, working class people try to get by. And unfortunately, that's the norm. So the question is, how do we provide and kind of get the ball rolling for that organized alternative so people can fight back? So the teacher strikes, uh, many of them in, in West Virginia and places that uh, in recent years are, are go, go Republican. Um, where did their success come from and how, to, how well did the teachers do when they were talking to uh, sections of workers who voted for Trump? Uh, what did you learn? The big story is that in two years, really since 2018, we've seen the most significant victories for educators and public services in generations. And, and the reason for that is that workers resorted to their most important weapon, which is withholding their labor. And so what educators did, starting in West Virginia, spreading to Oklahoma, Arizona, then after spreading to blue states like uh, California, Illinois, we saw Los Angeles strike in Chicago in 2019. And then more recently, there's been a just an upsurge in teacher organizing all across the country in response to the pandemic. What you've seen then is educators really, together with healthcare workers, but particularly educators, um, resorting to the strike weapon, winning over community support, and winning major demands. You know, So we've seen uh, significant pay increases, significant refunding of schools where educators have struck. Uh, they've always fought for kind of social justice type issues. So it's never just been about pay. It's been about more funding for students, about anti-racist um, demands as well. And so the dynamics really educators are pointing the way forward for the working class as a whole. And it shows you, you know, the fact that you had tens of thousands of educators on strike winning overwhelming support in a state like Oklahoma or Arizona shows you that this idea that really the fundamental divide in this country is between a blue state, red state, that really doesn't capture the reality. The real divide is between uh, the majority of people who are working class and the billionaires and the corporate politicians who are bought off by them. And so when you're able to really find an issue that galvanizes the material interests of the majority, you can sh you see that even people who voted for Trump, you had thousands of educators who voted for Trump, went on strikes against Republican politicians. So I'm relatively optimistic about the potential 
for a lot of people who right now either are just disengaged from politics or even who might have allegiance in the Republican Party, uh, for them to be able to relatively quickly join a left-wing labor movement if we're able to foreground the issues of concern to them and to others. And how did pro-Trump voters and others too, for that matter, but especially them, react to higher salaries for teachers and, and more money for smaller classrooms and such, when that means higher taxes? And higher taxes is what is at the core of uh, a lot of why people vote for Trump. Right. Well, the response of the educators who struck and what should our response be is we are for lower taxes uh, for working class people, but we're for higher taxes for the rich and the corporations, right? Like the question of taxes is who is paying their fair share and who is not. And so what educators raised is, look, we know that in all of our states for decades now, corporations have been getting tax breaks, rich is getting loopholes. And if we're able to start closing that gap, there's more than enough money in every single one of our states to create an excellent public education system for all. And, 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 and workers heard that, they, they listened. Yeah, yeah, I mean, this, is, this was not like a left-wing fringe issue that made sense to people. You'd be surprised. Uh, and the polls show this, even though it's not captured in um, you know, the mainstream media, the polls show that at least on economic issues and sort of bread and butter public services, there's actually majoritarian support for making the rich pay more um, and to provide the types of services people need. The problem is when the services are underfunded, which the Democrats have done just as much as Republicans, and people are like, why, you know, why, why, what are we getting for these taxes? So you need to be able to break out of that vicious cycle by providing good, well-funded public services and making the argument that that should come from the rich and corporations, not from working class people. When a specific struggle is taking place and teachers are known in their community, and it's one thing, but why isn't there a broader national movement in the United States? Given how urgent the climate question is, the climate crisis is, yeah. and, and how urgent the growth of dealing with the growth of fascism, uh, the, the Trumpist crazy politics, but it's, he's, he is as crazy as he is, uh, quite artful and successful in mobilizing a mass base for right-wing politics that's, I don't know if it's ever been seen in the United States before at, at, at this kind of scale. I mean, almost pretty solid 40% of voters. I know many of those voters are not from the working class. Many of them are, you know, wealthy or upper upper echelons of income who just don't want to pay more taxes and are traditional Republican voters. But still, a lot of people have been drawn into this very far right politics. There's never been such a need for a broad front. But most of the movements, like they're very siloed, issue-based and siloed, very little national uh, popular kind of motion. Uh, and so what are the obstacles to developing that? And what's happening in terms of developing that? The situation is perhaps a little bit less bleak than that. We've seen, for instance, the most widespread protests, according to some estimates in US history, were just a few months ago, the Black Lives Matter protests, by some accounts, were uh, the most widespread and majoritarian in a long time, if not ever. Um, we've seen an uptick in strikes in the United States, the highest number of workers on strike since the early 80s. We said the Bernie Sanders campaign, which did show, I think, despite not winning the nomination, but coming quite close, that there is actually mass sentiment. There's millions of people who are willing to vote uh, and organize for a democratic socialist who's openly taking on the billionaires. So the potential, I think, is there. It's true that 
after 40 years of neoliberalism, um, there is a significant minority, it's not a majority, but there's a significant minority of people who I think are crystallized around uh, right-wing racist politics. You know, it's not a majority though. The question then is how do we organize that majority um, so that we can further our agenda? And I think that there's a few things that need to happen. One is like no confidence in the corporate Democrats because as you mentioned earlier, really what you have is this vicious cycle in which the neoliberals just paved the way for a further move to the right every time because they don't inspire people. They concede the ideological and political ground to the right and just at most argue, well, we shouldn't go quite as far as them. And so when that is the dynamic, it's inevitably just going to lead to a vicious circle uh, and continuing a drift to the right. So to break out of that, you need strikes from below, you need organizing, and you need a political alternative. I'm actually relatively optimistic because we've seen, for instance, uh, every single member of the squad uh, get reelected in New York, where I'm based, Democratic Socialists of America, we just elected uh, the entirety of our slate to the state legislature who are fighting now for, you know, very significant political. For people that don't know the reference to squad, it means AOC and these other right. candidates. So there is, you know, it's uneven. But, you know, if you think about California, you think about Nevada, you think about New York, think about places where um, the overwhelming majority of, the prime, majority of voters in the primary, for instance, voted for Bernie. I think actually in a lot of states, you have a majoritarian basis right now already for a uh, social democratic politics at a minimum. And if you're able to start implementing some of those reforms and showing that an alternative is possible, it's going to be that kind of um, practical impact in people's lives that will percolate and that other people across the country and that you know, people who right now are just cynical, not wrongly about politics, will see that, oh yeah, change is possible. Because that's the main thing we're up against is this perception that you know, the whole system just sucks, but nothing can be done about it, so I'm going to get by. That type of uh, resignation can change very quickly. We saw that in the strikes. We've seen that whenever uh, mass movements have erupted, almost overnight, working class people who are feeling the problems of the world uh, can turn that resignation into resistance. The question then is how do we get the ball rolling on that? And I think there's enough examples of that happening that we should be optimistic um, that you know, in the next couple months and years that is gonna be on the agenda. So concretely, what do you think people should be doing? There's two main areas of work that uh, we should be focusing our energies on. One is rebuilding a, a militant labor movement. The history of this country and every country has been that without a strong labor movement, you're not gonna have a strong uh, progressive policy in government, you're not gonna have a strong you know, mass movement in general. That labor at its best has been at the center of fight for uh, all social issues. And the reality is that almost on any issue you can think of, whether it's climate, whether it's racial justice, the only way you're gonna win those demands is if you're able to redistribute significant amount of money and funds and power from the corporate elite down below. And the only force that can do that historically has been the organized working class. So part of the difficulty is that um, because labor was in decline, it stopped being sexy and leftists sort of looked elsewhere. So I think that one of the first things we need to do is understand that our strategic orientation can't be uh, to abandon the labor movement, but actually has to be to revitalize it, um, getting union jobs, helping transform our unions, you know, giving the boot to leaders who are just uh, supporting the Democratic Party. That's a very major issue, this struggle in the unions, because oh, yeah. not, all, not all, but most of the unions are so bound to the corporate Democrats. They just, you know, this word, this a play on the word, they don't believe other unions are possible. They don't think other politics are possible. I, I once met with a guy 
who was an advisor to the steelworkers. And I was with the president of the steelworkers at the time uh, for a, a, a brunch or something. And I asked him, well, you guys, without the unions, uh, money to some extent, but also on the ground, getting people out to vote and all this, if the unions don't really go into gear, the Democrats in most cases don't win. Why do you cede leadership to Wall Street in the Democratic Party? And his answer was, well, because they're the only ones with the cash to fight the far right. And if we don't out let them lead, uh, they'll just all go over to the far right. Uh, this, this, unwilling, this unwillingness by so much of the uh, union leadership to not even support Bernie Sanders, right. uh, it seems to me it's the, maybe it's the obstacle to building a mass movement. Because I take a, a large, I take your point. Without the unions, it's hard to see how this thing really happens. The question is, how in the past has that obstacle been overcome? Because that obstacle existed. It exists in the 1920s and it was overcome to a certain extent in the 1930s. Uh, in other parts of the world, it's been overcome. And the short answer is that, generally speaking, it's been because radicals have organized within unions to push in a different direction. That, you know, without people who are committed to more of a class struggle politics, actively contesting for elections in unions, actively pushing for strikes, it's very unlikely you're going to see that type of transformation. It's historically been socialists who've led fight back unions in this country and elsewhere. And one of the reasons why I'm relatively optimistic, again, about the prospects for labor is you do. You have a resurgent socialist movement in this country since 2016 with Bernie Sanders. And a lot of the socialists who are in Democratic Socialists of America are taking seriously the question of, like, how do we build our base within organized labor? So I think that's the first thing we need to do. And the second is uh, building a significant and serious political alternative, which is to say a viable and coherent alternative to the corporate Democrats. And I think that, you know, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We've seen the type of politics that Bernie Sanders put forward, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, um, local DSA candidates winning all across the country. This type of like open class struggle antagonism against the billionaires, that is a starting point. I think we need to give it more organized expression because even as we see right now with Bernie, who's out campaigning for Joe Biden, the reality is unless we're able to build more of like a coherent organizational infrastructure, uh, we are going to risk not differentiating ourselves enough from the Democratic Party as a whole, which a lot of people rightly are skeptical and sick of. So I think that the task is as we're running, you know, for the foreseeable future in large part on Democratic Party ballot lines, we need to really build up our own independent electoral infrastructure so that we're not dependent on the money or funds or apparatus of the Democratic Party as a whole. The, the way that AOC and some of these other progressives have done it from within the party, or you're talking about outside the party? I think our experience in the last few years has shown that for the current moment, the best way to sort of get out a message of class struggle politics is using the Democratic Party ballot line. I think that there's a contradiction within the Democratic Party between the working class uh, base that exists, people who vote for Democrats, and the fact that the party as a whole is controlled um, by the billionaire class and by political operatives, you know, who are bought off by them. So I think that contradiction is going to come to the head sooner or later. I, my personally, uh, I personally think that we need like a workers' party in this country. But in order to get there, we need to be a lot stronger. We need stronger labor movement. Uh, we need stronger left organizations. And so I think at this moment one of the benefits of running on the Democratic Party ballot line is that it gives us sort of a platform through which we can build up our own independent organizations, building up DSA, building up independent electoral formations locally. 
Um, and once those continue to grow, you're going to see a sharper and sharper battle, which you've already seen right now, in between you know, people who are actually trying to fight for workers and the Democratic Party uh, apparatus and the Democratic Party as a whole. And that contradiction, sooner or later, I think is going to lead to a split uh, and will creation, hopefully, of a workers' party. But we're not there yet because we're not strong enough yet. So do you agree with Sanders, AOC, and, the, and, and that group? Uh, that say Trump has to be defeated, which obviously means voting for Biden. Uh, and then the real fight with Biden picks up. Uh, how do you see the balance between these things? Look, it's a tricky one. I, I spent the last year or two organizing for Bernie Sanders and against a corporate Democrat like Joe Biden. So there's no uh, illusions on my part that Joe Biden is on our side. He's not. He's on the side of the billionaire class. That being said, I do think that at this point, given the reality that a Trump presidency would be so much significant, so significantly worse for working class people and put us on a much harder terrain to win any of our demands. Um, and not to mention the, you know, abrogation of democratic rights that is uh, looming if the Republicans are, and Trump are able to kind of just ensconce themselves in power despite the popular will. I think that given that, it makes sense to like hold our nose at this moment to get Biden elected. But with the understanding that starting November 4th or God knows whenever the uh, presidency is confirmed that our fight is immediately against him and we can't give him any um, sort of honeymoon period, no illusions. We need to tell people the truth right now. It's just like, yeah, if you're going to vote for Biden, that doesn't mean he's on our side. It means that Trump needs to be defeated first. In, in most American cities, certainly larger American cities, there's all kinds of progressive organizations. Uh, there's anti-war, there's organizations, uh, many that in the uh, African-American community, there's Latino. If you go on, there's groups that are organizing even about, you know, green environmental issues, local issues, and so on. It's, it's rare when they all get together. Uh, to some extent, the Sanders campaign helped a lot of these groups at least coalesce because at least individually as groups, uh, many, many of them came out and said, yeah, they were going to support Sanders. But even at city levels, you don't often see the groups all getting together and you almost never see all these organizations somehow getting together in a national uh, coalition. Um, it, it, again, the Democratic Party has this kind of national reach. But as you said, the Democratic Party is, is very split, really, in terms of what interest it represents. So how do you, do you think there needs to be this kind of national form? I know DSA is a national form, but it, and it maybe is the biggest that right now of, of the left groups, but it is still one of many. Um, and then the other issue is, does there not have to be a kind of popular front that also includes people that would not identify as socialists? Yeah, yeah that's a really good question. I, I, I do think that we need something like that. The question is how to go about doing that. You know, the devil's in the detail. I think that, for instance, right now, there is a possibility in the short term for a lot of different organizations, not just to endorse Bernie, but actually much uh, more broadly to unite against Trump, uh, not just on you know voting against him, but also in preparing for uh, mass mobilizations, potentially workplace actions, civil disobedience, things like that, to prevent him from stealing the election. So, so there is um, in process really right now, a process of trying to uh, bring together different organizations in defense of democracy. And I think that there's other issues that you can imagine 
that really have a very broad range of support and that bring together so many different constituencies and organizations, climate change would be an obvious one, right? So if you can imagine we defeat Trump, Biden's in power, you know, why did, don't we have millions of people in the streets locally and in DC calling for a Green New Deal? And almost every union, every social justice organization is somehow implicated in, in climate change and Green New Deal because it's such a far-reaching issue. So I do think that, you know, the process of bringing together people at this point is going to be uh, still at least at the start around the issues around which we agree. Um, but in building those sort of relationships and these struggles, that sets the basis for what I would like to see, which is that kind of group cohering on a more political level. So the other thing that can unite people, as you mentioned, are political candidacies that you know, really represent a broad range of um, issues. I, I think that on a national level for the foreseeable future, that's going to be harder because Bernie's quite old. But you can't imagine on a statewide level, particularly in places where we're stronger, Illinois, New York, California, some other places, you know, why not run a candidate for governor who's really like actually of the working class, you know, sort of a social democratic Bernie AOC type candidate that can bring together all of these different forces. And I think it's in projects like these um, that you really be able to see who are your friends and who are not your friends, because there is the reality that a lot of so-called progressive organizations and nonprofits uh, sort of talk left when it comes down to it, they're not willing to up, actually go up against the Democratic Party. They're not actually willing to go up against some of the funders of their nonprofits who might stand to lose if they, you know, step beyond the bounds that is acceptable to status quo. So how you forge like a real working unity is in large part through struggle and action. You have to test people in practice. I think this moment is, is quite unique. Uh, the pandemic is a, is a real dose of reality. Uh, and, the and the pandemic deniers, who are also climate deniers. Uh, and, and so if you put the pandemic and climate together, the sense of urgency, uh, I would think, is going to be you know, qualitatively different than it's been uh, certainly in my lifetime. Um, and, and the Biden climate plan, at least as it's presented on his website, uh, while it sounds pretty good on the surface, actually isn't when you dig into it. Uh, the, the core of the climate plan of Biden seems to be uh, reliance on carbon capture not really the phasing out of fossil fuel. And he's going to get to his target of a carbon neutral economy, it seems mostly through carbon capture and carbon capture is a quite unproven technology. There's no evidence you can reach the objectives with carbon capture, but he's trying to, you know, appeal to the fossil fuel industry at the same time and finance, of course, who are the major owners of the fossil fuel industry now. He's trying to appeal to them and win over the, uh, the climate change crowd at the same time. So assuming Biden's the president uh, and assuming he, he certainly gets more leaned on by finance and fossil fuel, uh, there's going to have to be this broad, broad front demanding real effective climate policy, because if there isn't, we're what, matter of less than 10 years, eight, nine years, where we're hitting 1.5. And now the predictions of hitting two degrees above average temperatures, pre-industrial temperatures, maybe as soon as 2030, 2040. I mean, it's crazy. It's within reach. And once you hit two, it's very hard not to be at three. And we're in a whole different world at that point. And I know Biden pays, you know, talks a little bit more about climate in the campaign, but geez, the, the sense of urgency is not being 
spoken of uh, nearly uh, to the extent that it should be. Reality is that Biden is not going to fight left to his own devices for the type of changes we need. You know, to be honest, even if he said he supported the Green New Deal as opposed to what he's doing right now, which is bashing it all the time, I still really wouldn't believe him because the Democrats, you know, their platform promises are basically scraps of paper. There's nothing binding about them. And generally speaking, they're ignored. You know, so even if he's even if his platform was better, I would still basically think that we need to assume that once in power, he will defer to the billionaire class. Because the reality is, even if you had a social democrat in power, even if you had burning power, you're going up against extremely powerful interests, right? Who will do everything to sabotage you. So given that dynamic, the only conceivable way that you'd have enough organized power to be able to force the government to force the corporations uh, to either make the changes or to, you know, basically give them the boot uh, so that we can have a sustainable planet. The only way you do that is through massive organized disruption, something really on the par of what we saw in the 1930s in this country. You know, we had mass strikes, you had general strikes, you had open unrest, because unless you create enough uh, costs for the people that run this country in the sense of political costs, there's no way they're going to give up uh, the exorbitant profits that they still can make and that they're going to try to make, uh, even if it means, you know, burning the planet to the ground. So given that dynamic, it's up to us to create that urgency. We shouldn't expect Biden to do it. I think that the reality is environmental organizations have gone through the Obama experience in which they largely deferred to him. And luckily, organizations, particularly like Sunrise, but others who are maybe a little bit more mainstream, are understanding that our struggle begins on day one of a Biden presidency to force him to do what we want. And we're not going to give any sort of honeymoon period uh, just because he's not a Republican. This broad front, does it not need to some extent to have some sections of the elites on board on a, for a real climate policy? I talked to a, a guy who, who uh, he's an academic, but he knows lots of people on Wall Street, senior people. And he says they do get, and, and you can see it even in some of their, uh, the way they speak, they do get and they're getting the urgency of the climate crisis. But they will, for example, he said, never accept a wealth tax. And if you, if you really want them on board for more effective climate policy, you can't threaten to upend you know, their inheritances and, and, and their assets. Uh, and what do you think of this, of you know, where the kind of more working class economic demands, mm-hmm. uh, where are they posited in the context that you can't or you wouldn't want to alienate all the elites. I mean, there's some of the elites that don't even mind paying higher taxes and even wealth taxes, but they're really a minority. Uh, So somewhere in there, there has to be a way to, for workers to demand and express what they need and their economic demands. On the other hand, the movement needs to get that this movement has to be very broad on climate or it's not going to succeed. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think what you're saying is right. And especially because our side is still relatively weak, um, I don't think we're going to be able to win against a unified corporate elite. And so luckily we can take advantage of the divisions that do exist um, to try to push forward. And so what that means to my mind is that we really have to ruthlessly target the fossil fuel companies and try to isolate them as much as possible, including from the rest of the corporate elite, to make them so toxic, uh, sort of in every way you think about, that um, we can make them pay. And that means things like reparations. You know, they're burning the planet to the ground. Let them pay back 
and you know pay the taxes that we need to build the infrastructure for new uh, green jobs, for instance, right? So there's ways about thinking about it um, that will you know make certain parts of the elite pay um, while providing the kind of economic benefits to bring workers on board. Because the reality is, if you don't do that, if you don't combine sort of a shift towards uh, climate policy with uh, working class interests, then you're going to see what you saw in France, for instance, with the Macron government, a very neoliberal government, pushing for climate policies on the backs of workers and that leading to a mass revolt, uh, you know, in the yellow jackets against the government and to a certain extent against their climate policies. So there's a real danger that unless we frame climate policies and make it in, in fact um, in the benefit of the majority uh, then there could be a backlash. And at the minimum, you're not going to have that sort of buy-in necessary to actually push it through in the urgent uh, timeline that we need. So I don't really think we can rely on the elites. I think that we need to try to split them, target the most toxic of them, um, and then hopefully the others will kind of get brought along in the wake. All right, well, look, thanks for joining us, Eric. This is obviously just the beginning of a conversation. Uh, I hope you'll come back and maybe we'll add uh, one or two more people to the conversation. And this is what I, one thing I really hope that this analysis.news website can do is be a platform for this kind of conversation. So thanks for joining us, Eric. Yeah, I appreciate it. And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news podcast. Mm-hmm.